Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, December 10th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hey, everybody. Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hello. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Later in this episode, we will hear from Mike Macker to the University of Texas, Austin, about how we can do a better job communicating to the public about the pandemic and the coming coronavirus vaccine. You may remember we had him on last summer, but I've asked him to come back because the communication effort is about to become even more important. But first, this week's news. So keeping in mind that we are taping this on Thursday morning, let's start with the COVID relief bill, which everyone seems to want, but still no one seems to be able to agree on. As we mentioned last week, if Congress does not act before the end of the year, a whole raft of relief programs, both health and economic, will expire. There seems to be a general consensus now for a bill of just under a trillion dollars. But as always, the details are proving problematic. What's holding it up now? (laughs) The same thing that's been holding it up for months. (laughs) It seems right now that the biggest outstanding issue, at least among this bipartisan group of lawmakers who have sort of recharged the negotiations happening, is liability protections for employers. Republicans don't want to go as far. Democrats want, you know, more restrictions on, you know, these protections. Republicans want fewer restrictions. Basically, we should say, because we talk about them a lot, that these are protections for companies from people suing if they get COVID because of something the company did or didn't do. Right, right. And Republicans are sort of saying that, except for gross negligence, they want to provide liability for employers, while Democrats want to have more restrictions, fewer protections for employers. Um, So this is something that, you know, has been one of the clear division points between the two parties for months and continues to be the major holdup. State and local funding, which has also been, you know, a division point for months, seems that is a little bit more of an agreement, at least among this bipartisan group of rank and file members. They put out sort of a summary of their proposal yesterday with about $160 billion for state and local. But this is something that, again, party leaders haven't gotten totally involved in. And like I said, these are issues that we haven't seen any sort of resolution for months now. But now they're also hung up over whether or not there will be payments to individuals, right? Yes, that's right. There was a coalition of Democrats that came out earlier this week, um, led by Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who said we shouldn't accept a stimulus unless it also has another round of these $1,200 checks. The White House uh, reportedly went over to Republicans and said, how about $600 checks? How about we add those to the package? The Washington Post reported that the president would actually prefer $2,000 checks for Americans, uh, which probably will be a no-go for Republicans. And so we really are running out of time here with a lot of divisions still left to be tied up. So normally we would be freaking out right now about the government shutting down because, of course, Congress did not finish its work on the annual spending bills on time, October 1st. And the stopgap funding bill that it passed back then expires tomorrow night at midnight. Any minute, Congress will pass a bill to give themselves another week. At least we assume they're going to pass this bill to give themselves another week. But rather than kicking the can down the road for another couple of months, which would be typical when you're about to change administrations, both Republicans and Democrats seem to want to actually finish the spending bills as a huge omnibus. 
and attach the COVID bill to that by next week. Is that possible? Well, the omnibus is also not something that they've reached agreement on yet. So we'll see. You know, I do think that it's possible. I think, you know, yesterday, end of the day, Senator Richard Shelby, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, said they were like 95 percent of the way there with the omnibus. But of course, that last five percent of that they haven't gotten are sort of the hardest sticking points. If they don't reach an agreement, it sort of seems like there hasn't been a lot of discussion as far as we know about how long they might try to extend government funding into next year, which could be a possibility, could set up another potential cliff, so to say, for another round of COVID relief, which is something that President-elect Joe Biden and Democrats have said that they're interested in doing once he comes into office next year. So yeah, we'll see. But it's a little early to say that no one is quite yet freaking out about the government shutting down, seeing as that, I guess, technically still is a possibility. And of course, the Senate still needs to pass sometime today or tomorrow this one week stopgap measure too. Joanne, you were going to say something. But also Mitch McConnell doesn't know if he's going to be the majority leader in January. The conventional wisdom is the Republicans would win at least one of the Georgia Senate races and McConnell will be majority leader. But this isn't a normal year and what was conventional. So McConnell has more leverage right now with Trump in the White House and him having a majority in the Senate than he will have come January. Either way, he has several Republicans he could lose. He does not have a total lock on his caucus, and he has even less in January. It'll be a narrow majority. So for him, now is the moment. And he has made what he sees as concessions. The Democrats have said, you're not enough. But I don't recall, Julie, when was the last time we didn't know who was going to control the Senate? When George W. Bush came in, we had a 50-50, remember? And then we didn't, we knew. But we knew, that's true. We weren't in a lame duck without knowing what was going to happen next. We've had 50-50, but we've never had, who knows, December 10th. Right. We've had undecided races. Minnesota went on for like eight months and we've had Louisiana and Montana and you know others. But I mean, McConnell knows his days may or may not be numbered as majority leader. It's interesting, though, to see how this is sort of affecting their negotiations, because, you know, normally at this point, if they hadn't finished the spending bills, they would just kick them into like the middle of February, the end of February, you know, give the, the new administration at least a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we've seen the last couple of years, they finally finished the spending bills in March or April. It would be soon if they finished them for the year in December, even though they are supposed to finish them October 1st. Yeah, right. So. They, and I think we also should note to our listeners that the current nickname for the combined omnibus and potential coronavirus packages, the coronabus. <laughs> I also heard it called the, the, the cromnibus, so, but I like the coronabus better. All right, well, let's talk about uh, President-elect Biden's health team, of which he unveiled some appointments this week. Please, political reporters, stop referring to this as his health team. Most of these are appointments slash nominations to positions that deal directly with the pandemic. The health team will be dramatically larger than the number of people we saw this week. Um, but let's start with HHS Secretary-designate Javier Becerra, currently the Attorney General of California, and before that, a 12-term congressman and member of the House Ways and Means Committee. He was not on the short list of people that we talked about last week, although longtime listeners will remember that we did have him on the podcast back in 2018 when I described him as, quote, using his current post to pursue a long list of health initiatives. Um, he has, you know, not as much health background, as I think some people were anticipating for the HHS secretary, but he has a fair bit, right? Yes and no. You know, in recent years, they've been, HHS secretaries have been people who've had large administrative roles before governors. We had the last four of them, ex-governors. Um, so he doesn't have that kind of administrative experience. His office is big. Um, in Congress, health wasn't his signature issue, 
but it was an issue. I mean, he was on Ways and Means. Julie and I talked to him in the hallways, you know, 20 years ago about healthcare, and and he knew his stuff. I mean, he was an informed, active participant in healthcare debates. It wasn't his primary motivation. As the Attorney General of California, in addition to the landmark national case, he is the the state AG who has been really the the, the leader of the the blue state fight against the red states trying to kill Obamacare, the Texas, it's it's, it's Texas versus California. On yeah, he's paper. literally the leader. Yes. He didn't do the oral, oral arguments himself, but he also created a strike force, um, which is a group of lawyers in, or he expanded it. There may have been one before, but he made it much bigger. Um, a strike force of healthcare attorneys and healthcare lawsuits, some of whom are focusing on things that are California centric because that it is his job. But he certainly knows healthcare law. There was a huge antitrust case in California that had national significance involving Sutter. He's like a healthcare guy with a big sign, but he's not like a healthcare guy with skywriting. <laughs> so how much trouble will he have getting confirmed by the Senate, given that, as Joanne pointed out earlier, we don't really know who's going to control the Senate. But assuming that Mitch McConnell still has a majority of one or two. Um, Republicans are already piling on about Becerra's support for single payer, which I find kind of ironic, given that he's the front man on the lawsuit to defend the Affordable Care Act at the Supreme Court. I mean, is this stuff going to stick? I think it's hard to say just yet, you know, how difficult of a confirmation Javier Becerra would have. I don't think it would be easier a walk in the park, you know, Plenty of Republicans have come out, you know, noting his support for single payer, calling him a radical. But at the same time, some of those moderate senators, you know, haven't really said one way or the other. I think Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who's on the help committee where he will testify for part of his confirmation, gave possibly like the most Senate answer ever saying basically he was in the House, but our paths didn't cross and not saying anything else one way or the other. Um, Senator Bill Cassidy, who's on help and finance and is a doctor very involved with health issues, you know, sort of said he was surprised that Biden's pick didn't have more of a health background. That's definitely um, an argument from Republicans. But he sort of said, I'm not saying that I'm going to fight the nomination. I'm not saying one way or another which way I'm going to vote. So I don't think this will necessarily be a walk in the park for the Biden team, this confirmation. But I think it's too early to say that he wouldn't be able to gain some Republican support. It, that's where who is in charge matters, because if this gets to the floor, yeah, he gets easily get the 50 votes. I mean, I can I can think of a number of people who would vote for him or likely it's not going to be 49. It's not going to, you know, he'll get it if he gets the floor, including probably Susan Collins, a couple of them. I mean, I, you know, a lot of them are going to say they're going to be they're going to be some ugly, big, ugly confirmation fights. We don't yet know who who the big ugly confirmation fight's going to be, but they're going to be. The question is, this is where McConnell matters a lot. Does McConnell get it to the floor? Because if McConnell bottles it up in finance and never gets reported to the floor, it becomes much harder. It doesn't become impossible, but it becomes much harder. So if you have a Democratic Senate and it gets out of finance easily, it goes to the floor and he passes. If it's a Republican Senate and they want to bottle it up and they have all sorts of ways of slowing things down and bottling things up, they probably, you know, McConnell probably has some up his sleeve that we can't even remember. It's how do you get him to the floor? Once you get him to the floor, 
yeah, I think he, he gets through it. So Becerra was one of a half a dozen people uh, formally named or nominated this week to important health positions. Normally, when we get an HHS secretary named, we also get a head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. But this being 2020, instead, we got a CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, who is actually an, ex- an expert in, wait for it, infectious disease. Uh, we also got the return of Jeff Zients, known best for fixing healthcare.gov when it crashed on takeoff in 2013, to be White House COVID coordinator and the return of Vivek Murthy, who was Surgeon General for the last couple of years of the Obama administration and who's been advising Biden and was thought to be a possibility to head HHS. He'll be restored to his old position, possibly with a broader portfolio. Anything surprising here? Uh, Vivek Murphy has been advising Biden since last August on coronavirus. And, oh, excuse me, since I believe since last March on coronavirus. And um, he has helped assemble the team of transition on coronavirus. He's brought some people in. He has um, been briefing Biden um, four to seven times a, a week for, uh, along with, often with David Kessler, former FDA commissioner, um, for like an hour or so almost every day. We all know that Biden likes to be surrounded by people he has personal trusting relationships with, and he clearly has that with, uh, with Murphy. So he's not going to his old job. He's going to his old job plus. Um, he is going to be, you know, Jeff Sines, whose name I never get right. Did I just do it right? Yes. He's not a doctor. He's not a public health guy. He's a manager. He's a manager who's, who's handled all sorts of crises, including healthcare.gov. Tony Fauci is going to be the chief medical advisor. Vivek Murphy is going to be in that room. The Surgeon General only has a bully pulpit, and they're going to use that bully pulpit and need that bully pulpit to change behaviors to get out of this pandemic. But I would be surprised if he's just running the public health service. He, he's, he's got Biden's ear. Well, he also, just like Becerra, will have to make it past the Senate. He had trouble with that last time. It took 13 months. He did. And for a few reasons. He'd expressed that gun violence should be treated like a public health issue. Um, And the organization that he founded, which was initially called Doctors for Obama and helped elect uh, the former president, became Doctors for America and also advocated for gun control as um, a, a way to improve public health. He was also very young when he was initially nominated. He was 36, so he hadn't had a medical degree for very long. But, you know, the job of Surgeon General is one of those kind of awkward positions when it comes to the uniformed services because in other uniformed services, if you're a Surgeon General, you've been in the field for, you know, 25 years or more um, before you can attain that rank. With Surgeon General of, you know, the U.S. like this, uh, it tends to go to someone who is, you know, more political and more there to advance the president's priorities. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens this round, because obviously the experience factor that Republicans might criticize would sort of be like, well, he held the role before. But Senator Joe Manchin didn't vote for him last time. So it'll be interesting to see what the West Virginia centrist does this time. I think that even if he isn't able to be confirmed as Surgeon General, that he'll probably have some kind of big role in the administration, such as an advisor, where he would be able to bypass Senate confirmation. He's just been so committed to the campaign and then to the transition. He's brought up, he helped bring, you know, progressives and centrists together on healthcare issues. Joanne mentioned various ways that he'd been advising the campaign. So he'll have a big role either way. I will just say that the idea that somebody who's been confirmed before did the job, left it for no no reason of cause, I think that would be a really hard vote, even for people who voted against him last well, time. Well, also, last time it needed 60 votes and now it needs 50. 51. Yeah. So um, the again, it's going to come down how much, you know, if it's a Democratic Senate, it gets reported out of help and he passes. They, they'll get 50 votes for him. 
if it's a Republican Senate, again, which fights do they want to pick? We don't know the entire cabinet yet. We know that if it was the other way around, the Democrats would choose X number of fights to pick. They did it last time. There was the symbolic fights, and then there's the, you know, the gung-ho fights. It doesn't mean that a lot of Republicans will vote for the cabinet, but did they really try to derail or do they go through the motions of objecting? Right. Go back to Alex Azar. It was always clear that he was going to pass, that he was going to get confirmed. There would be a lot of Democrats giving speeches about what they didn't like about him. But, you know, secretly they knew that he was like they liked him better than Tom Price. So we knew he was going to get through. We knew that it just had to, you know, there's theater. And he was clearly qualified for the job. All right. Well, but he had been the deputy secretary before. Again, as someone who had been. Well, he was a general counsel. Both. Again, it's is it McConnell or is it Schumer? And how much theater versus real opposition? They'll scalp somebody. Both parties do that, you know, but we don't know which one. You know, Becerra was confirmed with 60, so presumably he could not. Yeah. And not Becerra. I'm sorry. Not Becerra. Um, uh, Right. Was 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 uh, 60 last time after 13 months. Presumably he could get, you know, 50. And Kim Kim is right. If, If he doesn't get SG, he'll just be in the White House working with the coronavirus task force. They're not going to kick him out and say. Meanwhile, President Trump is still president. Um, and he is on the one hand continuing to insist that he won the election. But at the same time, he seems to be trying to throw as many roadblocks as he possibly can in front of the coming Biden administration. One is a new regulation issued conveniently enough the day after the election that would require HHS to analyze just about every single regulation on the books within 24 months. And those that don't get analyzed would be canceled, would be basically ended. The idea clearly seems to be to tie the Biden HHS up in knots and prevent them from doing anything else for the first two years of the administration. They could make this rule final before January 20th, which at the very least would make still more work for an HHS that wants to hit the ground running working on the pandemic. Um, How dangerous is this regulation potentially? Have we ever heard of the idea of you must redo every single regulation or else it will end? That seems implausible for an agency as large as the Department of Health and Human Services with the FDA and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and NIH and CDC. This just does not seem to be a realistic project. This kind of, you know, lines up with things that President Trump has been saying his entire term. If you think back to right when he got inaugurated in 2017, his effort to say, for every new regulation we put forward, we're going to get rid of two. Yeah, logistically, it's kind of unclear to see how this works, just because there are so many regulations on the books. It'll be interesting to see if they do finalize this before the end of the year and before they leave office. If anything, the Biden team tries to do to try to reverse this. It would also be interesting to see whether or not this would be subject to uh, the Congressional Review Act. And this goes back to as well, you know, who controls the Senate. Obviously, you can get CRAs on the floor. The minority can push that. So it'd be interesting to sort of see how that might, you know, if they can go through the CRA process, if they can reverse the rule. And it's not something necessarily that the Biden administration has to deal with. I think this is something that, you know, TBD exactly on how this ends up affecting the incoming administration. And just a reminder, the, the Congressional Review Act is something that only comes into play when uh, administrations change parties generally, and it allows Congress to go in and cancel regulations that were done in the last, I believe it's 100 days of the, the previous administration. 
I forget. It's either 100 or 60. Yeah. It allows them to, to cancel recently approved regulations. All right. Well, we're going to talk more about the COVID vaccines in a minute. I would add that the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee is meeting even as we tape this morning. And I don't know that this counts as trying to throw roadblocks in front of the new administration, but it appears that while the U.S. is going to get a chunk of vaccine from Pfizer as soon as it's approved, which could be in the next day or two, the federal government didn't exercise its options to reserve more. And most of what Pfizer can produce after that first tranche has been sold to other countries. In the meantime, president signed an executive order that tries to ensure that vaccines uh, stay in the U.S., but it's not at all clear that he can even do that. What is happening here, assuming that the vaccine is actually approved in the coming days? You know, the president's coronavirus czar was asked about it, and even he said that he wasn't exactly sure what that was about. You know, it's probably more of a messaging bill than anything else. It's not clear that there was going to be a massive number of vaccines shipped out of the U.S. to begin with. I mean, we're just starting where as soon as a vaccine is approved, they're planning on turning it around pretty quickly here in the U.S. to healthcare workers and the most vulnerable populations. So even the people who are close to the president said that they weren't exactly sure what uh, he was trying to achieve with that order. It's not like all the vaccines are made in America. They're not. He can't he can't, was he going to do annex Denmark where, or, or Germany or, you know? It's Germany. It's being made, at least for Pfizer, half is being uh, made in Michigan and half is being made in Germany. Right. And you know, I'm not sure where all the Moderna factories are, but at least Moderna was made in conjunction with NIAID. It was a joint, there's some of the basic science was done with the American government, but yeah, I mean, and, and Johnson Johnson has factories around the world. And if that one's approved, these are global companies. These are not branches of the American government that we have not nationalized the, the, the pharmaceutical industry. We, he can't do this. Now, you know, the larger questions of how many vaccines are going to come online, because, we're, you know, this AstraZeneca stuff is really confusing. We're really not sure how well it works and we're not going to know for some time. Johnson and Johnson. The hints that have been dropped looking good, but we don't know until we see the data. That's at least a few weeks, maybe a month or two. I'm not sure. And there are two or three more other we'll hear about in the coming months. On the best case scenario, the absolute best case scenario, it would take quite a few months, you know, middle of this year. It may go longer. That being said, we should be grateful for the vaccines, right? I mean, there's this new thing coming up with allergic reactions and there are problems. There are going to be unforeseen things. There are going to be glitches in delivery. There's going to be unevenness. This state does this and this state does that. And people are going to get mad. Why can't I get this? And who gets that? It's not going to be pretty. But the fact that we do have a vaccine in less than a year, we and other countries around the world, you know, in many ways, it's good that we're not getting all of it, right? You know, we we might say that we have a claim to a lot of it because we're so bad. But um, are we in a better place than we might have been? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think that raises a question that I don't think has been talked about enough. Um, while we do know from the data that the vaccines will prevent people from getting very sick with COVID, we don't actually know whether they will prevent people from actually getting the virus or spreading it to others, which means that we're going to have to continue masking and social distancing and all the other mitigation effort efforts until most of the population is vaccinated or unless we find out otherwise that's not going to be very popular is it like by you know next summer no i, I was telling um a family member about this the other day sort of the transmission point and how we don't know and i think that that's something that the public really doesn't understand and you know if, if you think back to the challenge it has been for the nation to get people just to wear masks generally now people are going to get a vaccine and then be told, oh, no, you still have to wear masks for possibly many months while we try to figure out, you know, A, does this actually stop transmission? And also, 
getting people vaccinated. There's questions of supply, but there's also questions of how much of the population is willingly going to get vaccinated right away, even if we have unlimited supply and enough vaccines for everyone. So I don't think that's something that has, to your point, Julie, been talked about enough and is not going to be popular. I think that's going to really fall to, you know, medical providers and the people who are actually giving people the vaccine to sort of say, and just so you know, you need to continue to wear your mask and wash your hands and do all of these, you know, public health prevention steps that we've been doing for the last year and really to convey the why that's important, um, maybe not just for them, but for their community. And that was actually my next question, too, which is as many people as we're going to have clamoring for these vaccines, there's large swaths of the population that don't want to take it. We know about the anti-vaxxers and the vaccine hesitants in general. There are people who generally don't trust the healthcare system with good reason. There are people who might trust the healthcare system, but worry that this particular vaccine has been rushed and or politicized. I mean, how big an effort is it going to be to convince people, to convince enough people to take this vaccine to actually confer herd immunity? It's an enormous problem because the, the logistics of this just delivering it, shipping it under difficult circumstances, storing it. If you thought you have to use it right away, you know, with the next number of hours, you throw it out. I mean, the logistics are like D-Day. And that doesn't even count the messaging and the public education and the fears and the misinformation and the confusion. I mean, like Mel just said, people don't understand. Well, I'm, I'm not going to get sick, but I'm still contagious. That's hard to understand. If that's true, we don't even know. Things that we don't know about are going to go wrong. I mean, learning yesterday that people who have allergies, severe allergies, might not be able to take the Pfizer shot was something we didn't know. We don't, and we, they have to study it. We're not sure yet. Right now, it's looking like if you have an EpiPen, and I don't know how many millions of people have an EpiPen, but many, um, you can't take the Pfizer shot until they learn no more. Can you take the other one? We don't know yet. You know, full disclosure, I've said it before on this podcast, I have a bee allergy, a bee sting allergy. I can't take the Pfizer. Not that I'm, I'm not eligible right now. When you're eligible, how are you to find out where to go and who's eligible? And every state's going to be different. And if I'm a 64-year-old with diabetes, but my blood pressure is fine, can I get it? But if I'm a 62-year-old and my diabetes, I mean, it's it's going to be really unclear. So the amount of chaos ahead of us is extraordinary. But saying it again, I'd rather be facing chaos with a vaccine than unrelenting epidemic without a vaccine. But things are going to go wrong. And every time something goes wrong, the anti-vax groups or the vaccine hesitants or the whatever is just going to be, see, I told you so. This is not a messaging that's a week. This is an ongoing messaging for months. And it's many months. And if we need boosters in a year, it's going to have to start again. It's both logistically the most complicated thing we've done in healthcare. It's an enormously complicated and deeply important messaging test. All right. Well, one final piece of non-COVID news this week. The Supreme Court has agreed to review the appeals court decisions, striking down Medicaid work requirements in Arkansas and New Hampshire. We talked about this. Boy, I thought it was last week, but I look back, it was in October. So if someone remind us what this case is about. The Trump administration allowed uh, states to apply for a program in which uh, certain people on Medicaid either had to work or train for work or volunteer in order to be able to stay on the Medicaid program. And if they didn't uh, record that they were working, then they could be thrown off and lose their health insurance coverage. Which happened in spades in Arkansas. <laughs> which did, which did. And a few other states had also applied but hadn't really gotten it all started. A lot of it is just that the websites weren't working properly. People couldn't record their hours. They didn't know about it, et cetera. 
Um, and so here it is before the Supreme Court. It's, it, will it even be relevant after Biden goes into office, though? That's um, a big question, whether they can moot the case by, you know, basically changing the policy. Um, I'm not positive whether or not they can. I mean, I know they can't with the ACA case because the federal government is not the defendant in that case or the plaintiff. But in this case, the administration changes the policy. I think it's possible they could make the case go away, but possibly not also. I mean, the other issue is that Biden is against this, but we don't know who's going to be president in 2024 or 2028 or 2032. I mean, the the Supreme Court ruling isn't just for the next four years. These waivers, new administrations don't, we've talked about this before, they don't tend to come in and totally undo existing waivers. What will they negotiate? What will they incentivize? How are they going to handle it with states? I mean, maybe they will come in and undo waivers, but that's not the normal 1115 waivers or, you know, I mean, I've talked to one expert said, yeah, they're just going to cancel it all. And it's someone we all know. I mean, we've all talked to her. Yeah, they're going to throw them out. And I've talked to other people who said, that's not what they usually do. So we don't know yet. They can, but will they? I mean, I don't know what courts, this is a conservative court. They may upheld it. Even the appeals court said, yeah, no. Yes, here. but we, there, were, there are nine different, yeah. There, there was, these were not divided decisions so far uh, against the, the, it's basically the, the question is, does the administration have the authority to grant these waivers? So we will, we will definitely see how that one plays out. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Mike Mackert, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. <laughs> We are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Mike Mackert. He is director of the Center for Health Communication at the University of Texas, Austin, and is a professor both at the Dell Medical School and the Stan Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations. And he is, as you might assume from all that, a leading expert in public communication about health. Thank you for rejoining us, Mike. I couldn't be more excited to be back. So we talked back in June about how public health and elected officials could best communicate about the pandemic and how to stay safe. Back then, I asked for a great and you politely declined. Are you ready now to say how we did? And incomplete. Uh, there's room for improvement. You know, every, everyone is uh, trying to figure out how to grade during a pandemic. I, I think a lot of the same challenges hold. You know, we're learning new things and there's a lot of people all communicating at once. And I think it can often be a challenge to make sense of all of it. I have noticed rather frequently that there is no unified message. And I'm not just talking about the differences between the outgoing Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration. I listened to the Sunday shows uh, the week before last and I heard a half a dozen public health officials basically contradicting each other. How important is it to have a single unified message? I think probably since the same as the last time we talked, you know, part of the problem is just what we know about COVID is evolving and that just creates its own problem. I think anytime we can be speaking as consistently as possible, saying the same, you know, three key things everyone should know, the better off we're all going to be, while also recognizing that different target audiences might need to hear different messages that are going to be most relevant to them. And so it's this tricky balance of let's say the same thing over and over and over again together, but also speak to people with the messages they will find most believable, compelling, persuasive, all those things. And and those might be different for different groups of people. Why has it been so hard to communicate the fact that there's stuff that we don't know, but also stuff that we do know? I mean, to this day, I hear people saying, well, you said back in April that we shouldn't wear a mask. I, I mean, I think this is the problem with people's understanding of the scientific process broadly. Or lack thereof. Yeah, it, it's all happening just so fast and so out in public. And even the people who are the very best at this, a month or two later, it's like, ooh, I, I said a thing that was right back then. 
And now it's not right. And so I think if you're only a casual consumer of the news, it can sound like people just never know what they're talking about, which then makes it harder to believe anything you're hearing from anyone. So my boss, KHN editor-in-chief Libby Rosenthal, has a commentary in The New York Times this week urging more tobacco-type scare messaging. Do you think that would be effective at this point? Well, one thing to think about is that right now we're, I mean, however many months into this, and people are tired. You know, fear appeals at any time are hard to calibrate because if it's too scary, people go into a fear avoidance mode. If it's not scary enough, it might not have any impact at all. And so I think in the best of times, fear messages are hard to calibrate to get the effect you're going for. And I think right now with COVID, it would be maybe even harder than normal to make that work. I have a a colleague here uh, in advertising who studies emotional appeals and health messages. And so she'll look at the difference between a fear appeal and a disgust appeal. And so that old CDC tips and former smokers campaign actually in a lot of cases, I think was tapping a little bit more into disgust than fear. And so all good health communication work, I think, is developing lots of concepts and pre-testing to figure out which are going to have the effect you're going for and then make those as good as possible. I want you to talk a little bit more about different messages for different groups. What kinds of different groups? I assume it's more than just young and old or believers and non-believers. People are complicated. And so There's all kinds of things that are going to drive their behavior. And if you think about the messages around wearing masks are attempting to hit all kinds of things, like wear it to protect yourself, wear it to protect your elderly relative at home, wear it to protect the immunocompromised person next to you. There's so many different reasons. And I think what can feel like, oh my gosh, there's 700 messages about why we should wear masks are because everyone who's doing it is trying to tap into those different things that might matter for different people. And so... You know, the idea of wear masks is great. And then targeted communication and tailored communication is always more effective than just one big broad message that's supposed to work on everyone. So what are the major groups that you're talking about when you say you need targeted messages? When you think about COVID right now, there's some people who are really buying into every public health message and are trying to do everything they possibly can. There's other people who are like view wearing a mask as a threat to their freedom in all sorts of different ways. And so in that case, starting to think about, well, actually a mask might be a path back to the freedom we all want, which is to go back to life as close to normal as we will ever go back to and not wearing masks at all. And so thinking about what are those different things driving in the case of masks, someone's interest or reluctance, and how can you make different appeals? There's a whole stream of vaccine promotion research that's all about moral appeals around vaccines. And so if if people are driven by a desire to be pure, well, maybe you can talk about how a vaccine is actually a way to keep your body pure of the actual disease. And so so that's going to work on some people who other messages might not. Well, I was just actually getting that. And to the reason I wanted to talk to you now, which is that we are finally approaching the approval of vaccines, which presents two different public problems. You have people who desperately want them and don't trust the government to distribute them fairly. And you have the vaccine hesitant who either don't trust vaccines in general or don't trust this vaccine because they're afraid that they got rushed to market. How do you successfully address all of those sort of different groups? I mean, it's, it's a lot. And there's people who I suspect would be hesitant of this particular vaccine who might normally be getting every other vaccine, like get their flu vaccine every year. And so part of it is recognizing that it's going to take a while for everyone to have the chance to get vaccinated. In some cases, thinking about who are the audiences who are first, who are most likely to be inclined to get the vaccine and focus on them. 
And some of those folks who might be a little more hesitant or reluctant because of not knowing all of the science and how it happened so quickly this time, it'll probably be a while until they would want it anyway. Like, let the vaccine roll out for a while. Let other people get it. And just that kind of person seeing others get it and get protection. And hopefully we're not going to see adverse events and all the things you might be concerned about when it really starts rolling out on a really large scale. Part of it just happening is going to be an important sign for that particular group. And so like thinking about who do we most need to persuade or help know different things and how can we help get them there right away if they're already inclined and not worry about convincing every American to get a vaccine in the next month because they're not going to be able to get a vaccine the next month anyway. Given all the misinformation we've seen until now, it seems inevitable that there's going to be a lot of misinformation about the vaccine, even if it's not causing serious, you know, adverse reaction to, you know, 10% of people have some reaction, but somebody's going to get sick and everybody's going to freak out. Is there some way to sort of preempt misinformation in advance? Oh, man, I think that's going to be a particular challenge. And when folks are thinking about how to do their vaccine promotion right now, help prepare people for, you know, X percent of you are going to get this potential adverse reaction and your arm's going to hurt or whatever it is for this particular vaccine they're getting. I think really preparing people for that and that it's not bad or wrong. That's just expected uh, in some people. I also think one thing that's going to be really important and it's going to help the cause of promoting the vaccine is it's 95% effective, which is a lot better than the seasonal flu vaccine in most years. And so I think the fact that its efficacy is so high is going to make it an easier sell on some people who'd be like, well, the flu vaccine, it kind of works or it kind of does it. And so if I get it, it's not a big deal. Like this one is effective enough. It's going to make selling it to certain people easier, which is great from a communication standpoint. So if you could deliver one piece of communications advice to the new administration, what would it be? The biggest thing that we end up talking a lot about in the work that our center does is that you are not talking to the general public. You are talking to millions and millions of individuals. And so the idea of individual-driven and audience-centric communication and messaging and really thinking through how is one person going to hear this message and trying to find good messages that can work for individual people is going to help a lot more than trying to think of one thing that will work for all Americans because that's basically impossible to do. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mike Macker, thank you for coming back on. Pleasure to be here as always. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Joanne, why don't you go first this week? This is a New Yorker piece. Um, How will we tell the story of the coronavirus by Andrew Dixon? And um, the Smithsonian, one of the Smithsonian museums was already creating the natural, excuse me, the American history, I believe, um, was creating a exhibit on pandemics because there have been other pandemics in our history, but not quite like this. And they were already on their way. And then this happened. And now they are, you know, the curators are at home, like the rest of us, trying to figure out how to tell this story. And obviously masks are going to be part of it. There was one anecdote about a teenager who had made her prom dress for a prom that wasn't going to actually happen out of duct tape. And it was apparently really gorgeous. And they wanted it and they thought, oh, by the time this is over, will the duct tape have, will it have fallen apart? Can we even preserve it? Can we get a a preservationist in touch with this teenager and have her figure out how to be her own curator? But I just want to read one, one paragraph. Often, the most eloquent artifact is an ephemeral thing that bears the weight of a history far larger than itself. 
a glass bottle melted by the heat of the bomb at Hiroshima, or a desk clock salvaged from the rubble of the Twin Towers with his hands frozen at 9.04 a.m. These are the items least likely to survive. Finding and preserving them is an enormous challenge. And with the coronavirus, curators are looking for an object that stands for not a single hour, but for a day, or a single hour a day, but for months, if not years. It's a great piece. Hand sanitizer. <laughs> Hand sanitizer's in there. Yeah. They're not, they said they weren't going to get a cruise ship. <laughs> Mel. Um, my extra credit for this week is an Atlantic story called The Danger of Assuming That Family Time is Dispensable by Julia Marcus. I thought this was, you know, a really interesting read at this time of year in between Thanksgiving and Christmas as everyone's sort of been figuring out how to do the holidays this year. And especially with the shaming, it talks a lot about the idea of like pandemic shaming and the criticism that people are getting, even when they're trying to do the right thing, you know, getting tested before traveling, driving instead of flying. And I just thought it was thought provoking as to how, you know, we're thinking about what we're doing ourselves and what how we're thinking about what others are doing. And maybe a good idea to keep some of your thoughts about what you're seeing people doing on Instagram to yourself and just not getting too hung up on that. I've been yes, I've been trying to keep a lot of thoughts to myself. I've had a lot of thoughts to keep to myself. Kim. I picked um, a story for my extra credit that my colleague uh, Robin Bravinger wrote. I helped a little, but really she did the main reporting. It's called, Here's How the GSA Plans to Disinfect the White House Between Trump's Departure and Biden's Arrival. I'm sure many of our listeners have been reading about how the White House has been linked with multiple super spreader events and probably more to come because they're doing holiday parties in the weeks ahead. It's probably no surprise that Team Biden doesn't want the White House to be yet another site of super spreader event, particularly with the president-elect coming in and he's further along in age, he's 78. So this story dives into what exactly would need to be done to get the White House sanitized before the new president comes in. There were some interesting tidbits. For example, one of the former chief ushers who's handled this before says that under a typical transition, um, and we know this won't be a typical transition, but under a typical transition, the White House turnover takes about six hours to move the old president out and the new one in. The first family arrives around 6 p.m., Everything is in place, including the president's toothbrush on the bathroom sink. <laughs> Interesting little tidbit. And I do want to note this is behind a paywall, but our annual subscription is lower than it was over at Business Insider. It's now only $59 for an annual subscription. So would encourage people to sign up. It's a fun story. So my story is actually a follow-on of Kim's story, and it's from Politico by our pod pal Alice Olstein and Daniel Lippman, and it's called How Biden Aims to COVID-Proof His Administration. And basically, once they finish sanitizing the property, Biden as president plans to continue, at least for the near term, the COVID precautions that they've been using on the campaign, meaning lots of virtual meetings, few people in the actual buildings, which are rabbit warrants for those of you who've never been in the White House workspaces. Um, Lots of events outside when possible and testing, lots of testing. But it is probably safe to assume that the White House will no longer be a super spreader site. At least that will be their goal. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our tireless producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay even when we're in different places and our technology doesn't want to work. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. Mel. At Mel McIntyre. Kim. At Leonard KL. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>